Chapter 10 This Friday, Mr. Stoyt's afternoon in town had been exceptionally uneventful. Nothing untoward had occurred during the preceding week. In the course of his various meetings and interviews, nobody had said or done anything to make him lose his temper. The reports on business conditions had been very satisfactory. The Japs had bought another 100,000 barrels of oil. Copper was up two cents. The demand for bentonite was definitely increasing. True, applications for bank credit had been rather disappointing, but the influenza epidemic had raised the weekly turnover of the Pantheon to a figure well above the average. Things went so smoothly that Mr. Stoit was through with all his business more than an hour before he had expected. Finding himself with time to spare, he stopped on the way home at his agents to find out what was happening on the estate. The interview lasted only a few minutes, long enough, however, to put Mr. Stoit in a fury that sent him rushing out to the car. Drive to Mr. Proctor's, he ordered with a peremptory ferocity as he slammed the door. What the hell did Bill Proctor think he was doing? He kept indignantly asking himself, shoving his nose into other people's business, and all on account of those lousy bums who had come to pick the oranges. All for, these, all for those tramps, those stinking, filthy hobos. Mr. Stoit had a peculiar hatred for the ragged hordes of transients on whom he depended for the harvesting of his crops, a hatred that was more than the rich man's ordinary dislike of the poor. Not that he didn't experience that complex mixture of fear and physical disgust, of stifled compassion and shame transformed by repression into chronic exasperation. But he did. But over and above this common and generic dislike for poor people, he was moved by other hatreds of his own. Mr. Stoit was a rich man who had been poor. In the six years between the time when he ran away from his father and grandmother in Nashville and the time when he had been adopted by the black sheep of the family, his Uncle Tom, in California, Joe Stoit had learnt, as he imagined, everything there was to be known about being poor. Those years had left him with an ineradicable hatred for the circumstances of poverty, and at the same time an ineradicable contempt for all those who had been too stupid or too weak or too unlucky to climb out of the hell into which they had fallen or been born. The poor were odious to him, not only because they were potentially a menace to his position in society, not only because their misfortunes demanded a sympathy he did not wish to give, but also because they reminded him of what he himself had suffered in the past, and at the same time because the fact that they were still poor was a sufficient proof of their contemptibleness and his own superiority. And since he had suffered what they were now suffering, it was only right that they should go on suffering what he had suffered. Also, since their continued poverty proved them contemptible, it was proper that he, who was now rich, should treat them in every way as the contemptible creatures they had shown themselves to be. Such was the logic of Mr. Stoit's emotions. And here is Bill Proctor running counter to this logic by telling the agent that they oughtn't to take advantage of the glut of transient labor to force down wages, that they ought, on the contrary, to raise them. Raise them, if you please, at a time when these bums were swarming over the state like a plague of Mormon crickets. And not only that, they ought to build accommodations for them, cabins like the one that crazy fool Bill had built for them himself. Two-roomed cabins at six or seven hundred dollars apiece. For bums like that, and their women, and those disgusting children who were so filthy dirty he wouldn't have them in his hospital. Not unless you were really dying of appendicitis or something. You couldn't refuse them then, of course. But meanwhile, what the hell did Bill Proctor think he was doing? And it wasn't the first time, either, that he'd tried to interfere. Gliding through the twilight of the orange groves, Mr. Stoyt kept striking the palm of his left hand with his clenched right fist. I'll let him have it, he whispered to himself. I'll let him have it. Fifty years before, Bill Proctor had been the only boy in the school who, even though he was the older and stronger, didn't make fun of him for being fat. 
They had met again when Bill was teaching at Berkeley, and he himself had made, made good in the real estate game and had just gone into oil. Partly in gratitude for the way Bill Proctor had acted when they were boys, partly also in order to display his power to redress the balance of superiority in his own favor, Joe Stoyt had wanted to do something handsome for the young assistant professor. But in spite of his modest salary and the two or three miserable thousand dollars a year his father had left him, Bill Proctor hadn't wanted anything done for him. He had seemed genuinely grateful. He had been perfectly courteous and friendly, but he just didn't want to come in on the ground floor of console oil. Didn't want to because, as he kept explaining, he had all he needed and preferred not to have anything more. Joe's effort to redress the balance of superiority had failed. Failed disastrously because by refusing his offer, Bill had done something which, though he called him a fool for doing it, compelled Joe Stoit secretly to admire him more than ever. Extorted against his will, this admiration bred a corresponding resentment towards its object. Joe Stoit felt aggrieved that Bill had given him so many reasons for liking him. He would have preferred to like him without a reason, in spite of his shortcomings. But Bill had few shortcomings and many merits, merits which Joe himself did not have, and whose presence in Bill he therefore regarded as an affront. Thus it was that all the reasons for liking Bill Proctor were also, in Joe's eyes, equally valid reasons for disliking him. He continued to call Bill a fool, but he felt him as a standing reproach. And yet the nature of this standing reproach was such that he liked to be in Bill's company. It was because Bill had settled down on a 10-acre patch of land in this part of the valley that Mr. Stoit had decided to build his castle on the site where it now stood. He wanted to be near Bill Proctor, even though in practice there was almost nothing that Bill could do or say that didn't annoy him. Today, this chronic exasperation had been fanned by Mr. Stoit's hatreds of, hatred of the transients into a passion of fury. I'll let him have it, he repeated again and again. The car came to a halt. And before the chauffeur could open the door for him, Mr. Stoit had darted out and was hurrying in his determined way, looking neither to right nor left up the path that led from the road to his old friend's bungalow. Hello, Joe, a familiar voice called from the shadow under the eucalyptus trees. Mr. Stoit turned, peered through the twilight, and then, without a word, hurried towards the bench on which the three men were sitting. There was a chorus of good evenings, and as he approached, Pete rose politely and offered him his place. Ignoring his gesture and his very presence, Mr. Stoit addressed himself immediately to Bill Proctor. "'Why the hell can't you leave my man alone?' he almost shouted. Mr. Proctor looked at him with only a moderate astonishment. He was used to these outbursts from poor Joe. He had long since divined their fundamental cause and knew by experience how to deal with them. "'Which man, Joe?' he asked. "'Bob Hansen, of course. What do you mean by going to him behind my back?' "'When I went to you,' said Mr. Proctor, "'you told me it was Hansen's business, so I went to Hansen.' This was so infuriatingly true that Mr. Stoit could only resort to roaring. He roared. Interfering with him in his work, what's the idea? Pete's offering you a seat, Mr. Proctor put in. Or if you'd prefer it, there's an iron chair behind you. You'd better sit down, Joe. I'm not going to sit down, Mr. Stoit bellowed, and I want an answer. What's the idea? The idea, Mr. Proctor repeated in his slow, quiet way. Well, it's quite an old one, you know. I didn't invent it. Can't you answer me? It's the idea that men and women are human beings, not vermin. Those bums of yours. Mr. Proctor turned to Pete. You may as well sit down again, he said. Those lousy bums. I tell you, I won't stand it. Besides, Mr. Proctor went on, I'm a practical man. You're not. Me not practical, Mr. Stoit echoed with indignant amazement. Not practical? Well, look at the place I live in and then look at this dump of yours. Exactly. That proves the point. You're hopelessly romantic, Joe. So romantic you think people can work when they haven't had enough to eat. 
You're trying to make communists of them. The word communist renewed Mr. Stoit's passion and at the same time justified it. His indignation ceased to be merely personal and became righteous. You're nothing but a communist agitator. His voice trembled. Mr. Proctor sadly noticed, just as Pete said trembled, trembled half an hour before at the words, fascist aggression. He wondered if the boy had noticed, or, having noticed, would take the hint. Nothing but a communist agitator, Mr. Stoit repeated with a crusader's zeal. I thought we were talking about eating, said Mr. Proctor. You're stalling. Eating and working, wasn't that it? I've put up with you all these years, Mr. Stoit went on, for old time's sake. But now I'm through. I'm sick of you talking communism to these bums, making the place dangerous for decent people to live in. Decent, Mr. Proctor echoed and was tempted to laugh, but immediately checked the impulse. Being laughed at in the presence of Pete and Mr. Portage might go with the poor fellow and do something irreparably stupid. I'll have you run out of the valley, Mr. Stoit was roaring. I'll see that you're... He broke off in the middle of the sentence and stood there for a few seconds in silence, his mouth still open and working, his eyes staring. That drumming in the ears the tingling heat in the face that had suddenly reminded him of his blood pressure, of Dr. Obisbo, of death. Death and that flame-colored text in his bedroom at home, terrible to fall into the hands of the living God. Not Prudence's God, of course, the other one, the real one, the God of his father and his grandmother. Mr. Stoit drew a deep breath, pulled out his handkerchief, wiped his face and neck, then, without uttering another word, turned and began to walk away. Mr. Proctor got up, hurried after him, and in spite of the other's angry motion of recoil, took Mr. Stoit's arm and walked along beside him. I want to show you something, Joe, he said. Something that'll interest you, I think. I don't want to see it, said Mr. Stoit between his false teeth. Mr. Proctor paid no attention, but continued to lead him towards the back of the house. It's a gadget that Abbott of the Smithsonian has been working on for some time, he continued. A thing for making use of solar energy. He interrupted himself for a moment to call back to the others to follow him, then turned again to Mr. Stoit and resumed the conversation. Much more compact than anything of the kind that's ever been made before, he said. Much more efficient, too. And he went on to describe the system of trough-shaped reflectors, the tubes of oil heated to a temperature of four or 500 degrees Fahrenheit, the boiler for raising steam if you wanted to run a low-pressure engine, the cooking range and water heater if you were using it only for domestic purposes. Pity the sun's down, he said as they stood in front of the machine. I'd like to show you the way it works the engine. I've had two horsepower, eight hours a day, ever since I got the thing working last week. Not bad, considering we're still in January. We'll have her working overtime all summer. Mr. Stoit had intended to persist in his silence, just to show Bill that he was still angry, that he hadn't forgiven him. But his interest in the machine, and above all, his exasperated concern with Bill's idiotic crackpot notions were too much for him. What the hell do you want with two horsepower, eight hours a day, he asked. To run my electric generator. But what do you want with an electric generator? Haven't you got your current wired in from the city? Of course. And I'm trying to see how far I can be independent of the city. But what for? Mr. Proctor uttered a little laugh. Because I believe in Jeffersonian democracy. What the hell has Jeffersonian democracy got to do with it? Said Mr. Stoit with mounting irritation. Can't you believe in Jefferson and have your current wired in from the city? That's exactly it, said Mr. Proctor. You almost certainly can't. What do you mean? What I say, Mr. Proctor answered mildly. I believe in democracy too, Mr. Stoyd announced with a look of defiance. I know you do, and you also believe in being the undisputed boss in all your business. I should hope so. There's another name for an undisputed boss, said Mr. Proctor. Dictator. What are you trying to get at? Merely at the facts. 
You believe in democracy, but you're at the head of a business which have, which have to be run dictatorially. And your subordinates have to accept your dictatorship because they're dependent on you for their living. In Russia, they depend on government officials for their living. Perhaps you think that's an improvement, he added, turning to Pete. Pete nodded. I'm all for the public ownership of the means of production, he said. It was the first time he had openly confessed his faith in the presence of his employer. He felt happy at having dared to be a Daniel. Public ownership of the means of production, Mr. Propter repeated. But unfortunately, governments have a way of regarding individual producers as being part of the means. Frankly, I'd rather have Joe Stoit as my boss than Joe Stalin. This Joe, he laid his hand on Mr. Stoit's shoulder, this Joe can't have you executed. He can't send you to the Arctic. He can't prevent you from getting a job under another boss. Whereas the other Joe, he shook his head. Not that, he added, I'm exactly longing to even have this Joe as my boss. You'd be fired pretty quick, growled Mr. Stoit. I don't want any boss, Mr. Proctor went on. The more bosses, the less democracy. But unless people can support themselves, they've got to have a boss who will undertake to do it for them. So the less self-support, the less democracy. In Jefferson's day, a great many Americans did support themselves. They were economically independent, independent of government and independent of big business. Hence the Constitution. We've still got the Constitution, said Mr. Stoit. No doubt, Mr. Proctor agreed. But if we had to make a new Constitution today, what would it be like? A Constitution to fit the facts of New York and Chicago and Detroit, of United States Steel and the Public Utilities and General Motors and the CIO and the government departments. What on earth would it be like, he repeated. We respect our old Constitution, but in fact we live under a new one. And if we want to live under the first, we've got to recreate something like the conditions under which the first was made. That's why I'm interested in this gadget, he patted the frame of the machine, because it may help to give independence to anyone who desires independence. Not that many do desire it, he added parenthetically. The propaganda in favor of dependence is too strong. They come to believe that you can't be happy unless you're entirely dependent on government or centralized business. But for the few who do care about democracy, who really want to be free in the Jeffersonian sense, this thing may be a help. If it makes them independent of fuel and power, that's already a great deal. Mr. Stoyt looked anxious. Do you really think it'll do that? Why not, said Mr. Proctor. There's a lot of sunshine running to waste in this part of the country. Mr. Stoyt thought of his presidency of the Consul Oil Company. It won't be good for the oil business, he said. I should hate it to be good for the oil business, Mr. Proctor answered cheerfully. And what about coal? He had an interest in a group of West Virginia mines. And the railroads. There was that big block of Union Pacific shares that had belonged to Prudence. The railroads can't get on without long hauls. And steel, he added dis disinterestedly, for his holdings in Bethlehem Steel were almost negligible. What happens to steel if you hurt the railroads and cut down trucking? You're going against progress, he burst out in another, in another access of righteous indignation. You're turning back the clock. Don't worry, Joe, said Mr. Proctor. It won't affect your dividends for quite a long while. There will be plenty of time to adjust to the new conditions. With an admirable admirable effort, Mr. Stoyt controlled his temper. You seem to figure I can't think of anything but money, he said with dignity. Well, it may interest you to know that I've decided to give Dr. Mulge another $30,000 for his art school. The decision had been made there then, for the sole purpose of serving as a weapon in the perennial battle with Bill Proctor. And if you think, he added as an afterthought, if you think I'm only concerned with my own interests, read the special World's Fair number of the New York Times. Read that he insisted with the solemnity of a fundamentalist recommending the book of Revelation. You'll see that the most forward-looking men in the country think as I do. 
He spoke with unaccustomed and incongruous unction in the phraseology of after-dinner eloquence. The way of progress is the way of better organization. More service from business. More goods for the consumer. Then, incoherently, look at the way a housewife goes to her grocer, he added, and buys a package of some nationally advertised cereal or something. That's progress. Not your crackpot idea of doing everything at home with his idiotic contraption. Mr. Stoyd had reverted completely to his ordinary style. You were always a fool, Bill, and I guess you always will be. And remember what I told you about interfering with Bob Hansen. I won't stand for it. In dramatic silence, he walked away. But after taking a few steps, he halted and called back over his shoulder. Come up to dinner, if you feel like it. Thanks, said Mr. Proctor. I will. Mr. Stoyt walked briskly towards his car. He had forgotten about high blood pressure and the living God, and felt all of a sudden unaccountably and unreasonably happy. It was not that he had scored any notable success in his battle with Bill Proctor. He hadn't. And, what was more, in the process of not scoring a success he had made, and even was half aware that he had made, a bit of a fool of himself. The source of his happiness was elsewhere. He was happy, though he would never have admitted the fact, because, in spite of everything, Bill seemed to like him. In the car, as he drove back to the castle, he whistled to himself. Entering with his hat on, as usual, for even after all these years he, was still he still derived a childish pleasure from the contrast between the palace in which he lived and the proletarian manners he affected. Mr. Stoick crossed the great hall, stepped into the elevator, and from the elevator walked directly into Virginia's boudoir. When he opened the door, the two were sitting at least 15 feet apart. Virginia was at the soda counter, pensively eating a chocolate and banana split, seated in an elegant pose on one of the pink satin armchairs. Dr. Obisbo was in the process of lighting a cigarette. On Mr. Stoit, the impact of suspicion and jealousy was like the blow of a fist directed, for the shock was physical and localized in the midriff, straight to the solar plexus. His face contracted as though with pain, and yet he had seen nothing. There was no apparent cause for jealousy. No visible reason in their attitudes, their actions, their expressions for his suspicion. Dr. Obisbo's manner was perfectly easy and natural, and the baby's smile of startled and delighted welcome was angelic in its candor. Uncle Joe! She ran to meet him and threw her arms around his neck. Uncle Joe! The warmth of her tone, the softness of her lips had a magical effect on Mr. Stoit. Moved to a point in which he was using the word to the limit of its double connotations, he murmured, My baby! With a lingering emphasis. The fact that he should have felt suspicious, even for a moment, of this pure and adorable, this deliciously warm, resilient, and perfumed child, filled him with shame. And even Dr. Obisbo now heaped coals of fire on his head. I was a bit worried, he said as he got up from his chair, by the way you coughed after lunch. That's why I came up here, to make sure of catching you the moment you got in. He put a hand in his pocket, and after half drawing out and immediately replacing a little leather-bound volume, like a prayer book, extracted a stethoscope. Prevention's better than cure, he went on. I'm not going to let you get influenza, if I can help it. Remembering what a good week they had had at the Beverly Pantheon on account of the epidemic, Mr. Stoyt felt alarmed. I don't feel bad, he said. I guess that cough wasn't anything, only my old, you know, the chronic bronchitis. Maybe it was only that. But all the same, I'd like to listen in. Briskly professional, Dr. Obisbo hung the stethoscope around his neck. He's right, Uncle Joe, said the baby touched by so much solicitude, and at the same time rather disturbed by the thought that it might perhaps be influenza, Mr. Stoit took off his coat and waistcoat and began to undo his tie. A moment later, he was standing stripped to the waist under the crystals of the chandelier. Modestly, Virginia retired again to her soda fountain. Dr. Obisbo slipped the ends of the curved nickel tubes of the stethoscopes into his ears. 
Take a deep breath, he said as he pressed the muzzle against Mr. Stoyt's chest. Again, he ordered. Now cough. Looking past that thick barrel of hairy flesh, he could see on the wall behind the inhabitants of Watteau's mournful paradise as they prepared to set sail for some other paradise, doubtless yet more heartbreaking. Say 99, Dr. Abisbo commanded, returning from the embarkation for Cythera to a near view of Mr. Stoit's thorax and abdomen. 99, said Mr. Stoit. 99. 99. With professional thoroughness, Dr. Obisbo shifted the muzzle of his stethoscope from point to point on the curving barrel of flesh before him. There was nothing wrong, of course, with the old buzzard. Just the familiar set of rowls and wheezes he always had. Perhaps it would make things a bit more realistic if he were able to take the creature down to his office and stick him up, up in front of the fluoroscope. But no, he really couldn't be bothered. And besides, this farce would be quite enough. Cough again, he said, planting his instrument among the gray hairs on Mr. Stoyt's left pap. And among other things, he went on to reflect, while Mr. Stoit forced out a succession of artificial coughs. Among other things, these old sacks of guts didn't smell too good. How any young girl could stand it, even for money, he really couldn't imagine. And yet the fact remained that there were thousands of them who not only stood it, but actually enjoyed it. Or perhaps enjoy was the wrong word. Because in most cases, there probably wasn't any question of enjoyment in the proper physiological sense of the word. It all happened in the mind, not in the body. They loved their old gut sacks with their heads. <laughs> loved them because they admired them, because they were impressed by the gut sack's position in the world, or his knowledge, or his celebrity. What they slept with wasn't the man. It was a reputation. It was the embodiment of a function. And then, of course, some of the girls were future models for Mother's Day advertisements. Some were little Florence Nightingales on the lookout for a Crimean war. In those cases, the very infirmities of their gut sacks were added attraction. They had the satisfaction of sleeping not only with a reputation or a stock of wisdom, not only with a federal judgeship, for example, or the presidency of a chamber of commerce, but also and simultaneously with a wounded soldier, with an imbecile child, with a lovely, stinking little baby who still made messes in its bed. Even this cutie, Dr. Obisbo shot a sideways glance in the direction of the soda fountain, even this one had something of the Florence Nightingale in her, something of the gold star mother. And that, in spite of the fact that, with her conscious mind, she felt a kind of physical horror of maternity. Joe Stoit was a little bit her baby and her patient. And at the same time, of course, he was a great deal her own private Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Your own private Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Incidentally, he also happened to be the man with the checkbook. Which was a consideration, of course. But if he were only that, Virginia wouldn't have been so nearly happy as she obviously was. The checkbook was made more attractive by being in the hands of a demigod who had to have a nanny to change his diapers. <laughs> Turn round, please. Mr. Stoyd obeyed. The back, Dr. Obisbo reflected, was perceptibly less revolting than the front, perhaps because it was less personal. Take a deep breath, he said, for he was going to play the farce all over again on this new stage. Another. Mr. Stoyd breathed enormously, like a cetacean. And again, said Dr. Obisbo, reflecting as the old man snorted, that his own chief asset was a refreshing unlikeliness to this smelly old cut sack. She would take him and take him, what was more on his own terms. No Romeo and Juliet acts, no nonsense about love with a large L, none of that popular song claptrap with the skies of blue, dreams come true, heaven with you, just sensuality for its own sake. The real essential concrete thing, no less, it went without saying, but also, and this most certainly didn't go without saying, for the bitches were always trying to get you to stick them on pedestals or be their soulmates, also no more. No more to begin with out of respect for scientific truth. He believed in scientific truth. 
Facts were facts. Accept them as much as such. It was a fact, for example, that young girls in the pay of rich old men could be seduced without much difficulty. It was also a fact that rich old men, however successful at business, were generally so frightened, ignorant, and stupid that they could be bamboozled by any intelligent person who chose to try. Say 99 again, he said aloud. 99. 99. 99 chances out of 100 that they would never find out anything. This was the fact about old men. The fact about love was that it consisted essentially of tumescence and detumescence. So why embroider the fact with unnecessary fictions? Why not be realistic? Why not treat the whole business scientifically? 99, Mr. Stoyt ran on repeating, 99. And then Dr. Abismo went on to reflect, as he listened without interest to the whisperings and crepidations inside the warm, smelly barrel before him. Then there were the more personal reasons for preferring to take love unadorned, in the chemically pure condition. Personal reasons that were also, of course, a fact that had to be accepted. For it was a fact that he personally found an added pleasure in the imposition of his will upon the partner he had chosen. To be pleasurable, this imposition of will must never be too easy, too much a matter of course, which ruled out all professionals. <laughs> the partner had to be an amateur, and like all amateurs, committed to the thesis that tumescence and detumescence should always be associated with love, passion, soulmating, all in uppercase letters. In imposing his will, he imposed the contradictory doctrine, the doctrine of tumescence and detumescence for tumescence and detumescence's sake. All he asked was that a partner should give the thesis a practical tryout, however reluctantly, however experimentally, for just once only. He didn't care. Just a single tryout. After that, it was up to him. If he couldn't make a permanent and enthusiastic convert of her, at any rate so far as he was concerned, then the fault was his. 99. 99, said Mr. Stoit with exemplary patience. You can stop now, Dr. Abiesbell told him graciously. Just one tryout, he could practically guarantee himself success. It was a branch of applied physiology. He was an expert, a specialist, the Claude Bernard of the subject. And talk of imposing one's will. You begin by forcing the girl to accept a thesis that was in flat contradiction to all the ideas she had been brought up with. All the dreams come true rigmarole of popular ideology. Quite a pleasant little victory, to be sure. But it was only when you got down to the applied physiology that the series of really satisfying tri triumphs began. You took an ordinarily rational human being, a good 100% American with a background, a position in society, a set of conventions, a code of ethics, a religion, Catholic in the present instance, Dr. Obisbo remembered parenthetically. You took this good citizen, with rights fully and formally guaranteed by the Constitution. You took her, and perhaps she had come to the place of assignation in her husband's Packard limousine, and direct from a banquet, with speeches in honor, say, of Dr. Nicholas Murray Butler, or the retiring Archbishop of Indianapolis. You took her and you proceeded, systematically and scientifically, to reduce this unique personality to a mere epileptic body, moaning and gibbering under the excruciations of a pleasure for which you, the Claude Bernard of the subject, were responsible, and of which you remain the enjoying, but always detached, always ironically amused spectator. Just a few more deep breaths, if you don't mind. Weasley, Dr. Stoit inhaled, then with a snorting sigh, emptied his lungs. Chapter 11 There was silence after Mr. Stoit's departure. A long silence while each of the three men thought his own private thoughts. It was Pete who spoke first. Things like that, he said gloomily. They get me kind of wondering if I ought to go on taking his money. What would you do, Mr. Proctor, if you were me? What would I do? Mr. Proctor reflected for a moment. I'd go on working in Joe's laboratory, he said. 
but only so long as I felt fairly certain that what I was doing wouldn't cause more harm than good. One has to be a utilitarian in these matters. A utilitarian with a difference, he qualified. Bentham crossed with Eckert, say, or Nagarhuna. Poor Bentham, said Jeremy, horrified by the thought of what, he was being, what was being done to his namesake. Mr. Proctor smiled. Poor Bentham, indeed. Such a good, sweet, absurd, intelligent man. So nearly right, but so enormously wrong. Deluding himself with the notion that the greatest happiness of the greatest number could be achieved on the strictly human level, the level of time and evil, the level of the absence of God. Poor Bentham, he repeated. What a great man he would have been if only he could have grasped that good can't be had except where it exists. That sort of utilitarian you're talking about, said Pete. What would he feel about the job I'm doing now? I don't know, Mr. Proctor answered. I haven't thought about it enough to guess what he'd say. And anyhow, we haven't yet got the empirical material on which a reasonable judgment could be based. All I know is that if I were in on this, I'd be cautious. Infinitely cautious, he insisted. And what about the money, Pete went on? Seeing where it comes from and who it belongs to, do you think I ought to take it? All money's pretty dirty, said Mr. Proctor. I don't know that poor Joe's is appreciably dirtier than anyone else's. You may think it is, but that's only because, for the first time, you're seeing money at its source. Its personal, human source. You're like one of those city children who have been used to getting their milk in sterilized bottles from a shiny white delivery wagon. When they go into the country and see it being pumped out of a big, fat, smelly old animal, they're horrified. They're disgusted. It's the same with money. You've been used to getting it from behind a bronze grating in a, mag- in a magnificent marble bank. Now you come out into the country and are living in the cow shed with the animal that actually secretes the stuff. <laughs> and the process doesn't strike you as very savory or hygienic. But the same process was going on even when you didn't know about it. And if you weren't working for Joe Stoit, you'd probably be working for some college or university. But where do colleges and universities get their money from? From rich men. In other words, from people like Joe Stoit. Again, it's dirt served out in sterile containers by a, ge- by a gentleman in a cap and gown this time. So you figure it's all right for me to go on like I am now. All right, Mr. Proctor answered, in the sense that it's not conspicuously worse than anything else. Suddenly smiling, I was glad to hear that Dr. Mulge had got his art school, he said in another lighter tone, immediately after the auditorium, too. It's a lot of money, but I suppose the prestige of being a patron of learning is worth it. And of course, there's an enormous social pressure on the rich to make them become patrons of learning. They're being pushed by shame as well as pulled by the longing to believe they're the benefactors of humanity. And happily, with Dr. Mulge, a rich man can have his kudos with safety. No amount of art schools at Tarzana will ever disturb the status quo. Whereas if I were to ask Joe for $50,000 to finance research into the technique of democracy, he'd turn me down flat. Why? Because he knows that sort of thing is dangerous. He likes speeches about democracy. Incidentally, Dr. Mulge is really terrific on the subject. But he doesn't approve of the coarse materialists who try to find out how to put those ideals into practice. You saw how angry he got about my poor little sun machine. Because, in its tiny way, it's a menace to the sort of big business he makes his money from. And it's the same with these other little gadgets that I've talked to him about from time to time. Come and look, if it doesn't bore you. He took them into the house. Here was the little electric mill, hardly larger than a coffee machine, in which he ground his own flour, as he needed it. Here was the loom at which he had learned and was now teaching others to weave. Next, he took them out to the shed in which, with a few hundred dollars worth of electrically operated tools, he was equipped to do any kind of carpentry, and even some light metal work. Beyond the shed were the still unfinished greenhouses, for the vegetable plots weren't adequate to supply the demands of his transients. 
There they were, he added, pointing through the increasing darkness to the lights of a row of cabins. He could put up only a few of them. The rest had to live in a sort of garbage heap down in the dry bed of the river, paying rent to Joe Stoint for the privilege. Not the best material to work with, of course, but such misery as theirs left one no choice. They simply had to be attended to. A few had come through undemoralized, and of these, a few could see what had to be done, what you had to aim at. Two or three were working with him here, and he had been able to raise money to settle two or three more on some land near Santa Susana. Mere beginnings, unsatisfactory at that. Because, obviously, you could not even start experimenting properly until you had a full-fledged community working under the new conditions. But to set a community on its feet would require money, a lot of money. But rich men wouldn't touch the work. They preferred art schools at Tarzana. The people who were interested had no money. That was one of the reasons why they were interested. Borrowing at the current commercial rates was dangerous, except in very favorable circumstances that chances were you'd be merely selling yourselves into slavery to a bank. It isn't easy, said Mr. Proctor, as they walked back to the house. But the great point is that, easy or not, easy, easy or not easy, it's there, waiting to be done. Because, after all, Pete, there is something to do. Mr. Proctor went into the bungalow for a moment to turn out the lights, then emerged again onto the porch. Together, the three men walked down the path to the road. Before them, the castle was a vast black silhouette, punctured by occasional lights. There is something you can do, Mr. Proctor resumed, but only on condition that you know what the nature of the world happens to be. If you know that the strictly human level is the level of evil, you won't waste your time trying to produce good on that level. Good manifests itself only on the animal level and on the level of eternity. Knowing that, you'll realize that the best you can do on the human level is preventative. You can see that purely human activities don't interfere too much with the manifestation of good on the other levels. That's all. The politicians don't know the nature of reality. If they did, they wouldn't be politicians. Reactionary or revolutionary, they're all humanists, all romantics. They live in a world of illusion, a world that's a mere projection of their own human personalities. They act in ways which would be appropriate if such a world as they think they live in really existed. But unfortunately, it doesn't exist except in their imaginations. Hence, nothing that they do is appropriate to the real world. All their actions are the actions of lunatics. And all, as history is there to demonstrate, are more or less completely disastrous. So much for the romantics. The realists who have studied the nature of the world know that an exclusively humanistic attitude towards life is always fatal, and that all strictly human activities must therefore be made instrumental to animal and spiritual good. They know, in other words, that men's business is to make the human world safe for animals and spirits. That's good. They know, in other words, that men's business is to make the human world safe for animals and spirits. Or perhaps, he added, turning to Jeremy, perhaps as an Englishman you prefer Lloyd George's phrase to Wilson's, a home fit for heroes to live in. Wasn't that it? A home fit for animals and spirits, for physiology and disinterested consciousness. At present, I'm afraid, it's profoundly unfit. The world we've made for ourselves is a world of sick bodies and insane or criminal personalities. How shall we make this world safe for ourselves as animals and as spirits? If we can answer that question, we've discovered what to do. Mr. Proctor halted at what appeared to be a wayside shrine, opened a small steel door with a key he carried in his pocket, and, lifting the receiver of the telephone within, announced their presence to an invisible porter somewhere on the other side of the moat. They walked on. 
What are the things that make the world unsafe for animals and spirits? Mr. Proctor continued. Obviously, greed and fear, lust for power, hatred, anger. At this moment, a dazzling light struck them full in the face and was almost immediately turned out. What in heaven's name? Jeremy began. Don't worry, said Peter. They only want to make sure it's us, not a set of gangsters. It's just the searchlight. Just our old friend Joe expressing his personality, said Mr. Proctor, taking Jeremy's arm. In other words, proclaiming to the world that he's afraid because he's been greedy and domineering. And he's been greedy and domineering, among other reasons, because the present system puts a premium on those qualities. Yeah, like fucking Elon Musk. God, that guy. Anyway, our problem is to find a system that will give the fewest possible opportunities for unfortunate people, like Elon Musk, <laughs> to realize their potentialities. The bridge had swung down as they approached the moat, and now the boards rang hollow under their feet. You'd like socialism, Pete, Mr. Proctor continued, but socialism seems to be fatally committed to centralization and standardized urban mass production all around. Besides, I see too many occasions for bullying there, too many opportunities for bossy people to display their bossiness, for sluggish people to sit back and be slaves. The portcullis rose. The gates slid back to receive them. If you want to make the world safe for animals and spirits, you must have a system that reduces the amount of fear and greed and hatred and domineering to their minimum, which means that you must have enough economic security to get rid at least of that source of worry. Enough personal responsibility to prevent people from wallowing in sloth. Enough, enough property to protect them from being bullied by the rich, but not enough to permit them to bully. And the same thing with political rights and authority. Enough of the first for the protection of the many, too little of the second for a domination by the few. Sounds like peasants to me, said Pete dubiously. Peasants plus small machines and power, which means that they're no longer peasants, except insofar as they're largely self-sufficient. And who makes the machines? More peasants? No, the same sort of people as make them now. What can't be satisfactorily except by mass production, what, what, what can't be made satisfactorily except by mass production methods obviously has to go on being made that way. About a third of all production, that's what it seems to amount to. The other two-thirds are more economically produced at home or in a small workshop. The immediate practical problem is to work out the technique of that small-scale production. At present, all the research is going to the discovery of new fields for mass production. In the grotto, a row of 25-watt electric candles burned in perpetual devotion before the Virgin. Above, on the tennis court, the second butler, two maids, and the head electrician were playing mixed doubles by the light of arc lamps. And do you figure people will want to leave the cities and live the way you're telling us on little farms? Ah, now you're talking, Pete, said Mr. Proctor approvingly. Frankly, then, I don't expect them to leave the cities any more than I expect them to stop having wars and revolutions. All I expect is that if I do my work and it's reasonably good, there will be a few people who will want to collaborate with me. That's all. But if you're not going to get more than just a few, what's the point? Why not try to do something with the cities and the factories, seeing that that's where most people are going to stay? Wouldn't that be more practical? It depends on how one defines the word, said Mr. Proctor. For example, you seem to think that it's practical to help a great many people to pursue a policy which is known to be fatal, but that it isn't practical to help a very few people to pursue a policy which there is every reason to regard as sound. I don't agree with you. But the many are there. You've got to do something about them. You've got to do something about them, Mr. Proctor agreed. But at the same time, there are circumstances in which you can't do anything. You can't do anything effective about anyone if he doesn't choose or, is, or isn't able to collaborate with you in doing the right thing. For example, you've got to help people who are being killed off by malaria. 
but in practice you can't help them if they refuse to screen their windows and insist on taking walks near stagnant water in the twilight. It's exactly the same with the diseases of the body politic. You've got to help people if they're faced by war or ruin or enslavement, if they're under the menace of sudden revolution or slow degeneration. You've got to help. But the fact remains, nevertheless, that you can't help if they persist in the course of behavior which originally got them into their trouble. For example, you can't preserve, you can't preserve people from the horrors of war if they won't give up the pleasures of nationalism. You can't save them from slumps and depressions so long as they go on thinking exclusively in terms of money and regarding money as the supreme good. You can't avert revolution and enslavement if they will identify progress with the increase of centralization and prosperity with the intensifying of mass production. You can't preserve them from collective madness and suicide if they persist in paying divine honors to ideals which are merely projections of their own personalities. In other words, if they persist in worshipping themselves rather than God. So much for conditional clauses. Now let's consider the actual facts of the present situation. For our purposes, the most significant facts are these. The inhabitants of every civilized country are menaced. All desire passionately to be saved from impending disaster. The overwhelming majority refuse to change the habits of thought, feeling, and action which are directly responsible for their present plight. In other words, they can't be helped because they are not prepared to collaborate with any helper who proposes a rational and realistic course of action. In these circumstances, what ought the would-be helper do? He's got to do something, said Pete. Even if he thereby accelerates the process of destruction, Mr. Proctor smiled sadly. Doing for doing's sake, he went on. I prefer Oscar Wilde. Bad art can't do so much harm as ill-considered political action. Doing good on any but the any but the tiniest scale requires more intelligence than most people possess. They ought to be content with keeping out of mischief. It's easier, and it doesn't have such frightful results as trying to do good in the wrong way. Twiddling the thumbs and having good manners are much more helpful in most cases than rushing about with good intentions and doing things. Floodlighted, Giambologna's nymph was still indefatigably spouting away against the velvet background of the darkness. Electricity and sculpture, Jeremy was thinking as he looked at her, predestined partners. The things that old Bernini could have done with a battery of projectors. The startling lights, the rich, fantastic shadows, the female mystics in orgasm, the conglobulated angels, the skeletons whizzing up out of papal tombs like skyrockets, the saints in their private hurricane of flapping draperies and wind-blown marble curls. What fun, what splendor, what self-parodying emphasis, what staggering beauty. What enormous bad taste. And what a shame that the man should have should have and what ugh, and what a shame that the man should have had to be content with mere daylight and tallow candles. No, Mr. Proctor was saying in answer to a protesting question from the young man. No, I certainly wouldn't advise their abandonment. I'd advise the constant reiteration of the truths they've been told again and again during the past three thousand years. And in the intervals I'd do active work on the techniques of a better system. And I'd collaborate with the few who understand what the system is and are ready to pay the price demanded for its realization. Incidentally, the price measured in human terms is enormously high. Though, of course, much lower than the price demanded by the nature of things from those who persist in behaving in the standard human way. Much lower than the price of war, for example. Particularly war with contemporary weapons. Much lower than the price of economic depression and political enslavement. And what happens, Jeremy asked in a fluting voice, what happens when you've had your war? Will the few be any better off than the many? Oddly enough, Mr. Proctor answered, 
there's just a chance they may be. For this reason, if they've learned the technique of self-sufficiency, they'll find it easier to survive a time of anarchy than the people who depend for their livelihood on a highly centralized and specialized organization. You can't work for the good without incidentally preparing yourself for the worst. He stopped speaking, and they walked on through a silence broken only by the sound from somewhere high overhead in the castle of two radios tuned to different stations. The baboons, on the contrary, were already asleep. Chapter 12 In the columned Lady Chapel, with its hat racks and its magnascos, its brancusi and its, Etrus- and its Etruscan sarco- sarcophagus used as, as an umbrella stand, Jeremy Portage began, all of a sudden, to feel himself more cheerful and at home. It's as though one were walking into the mind of a lunatic, he said, smiling happily, as he hung up his hat and followed the others into the great hall. Or rather an idiot, he qualified, because I suppose a lunatic's a person with a one-track mind, whereas this, he made a circular gesture, this is a no-track mind. No track because infinity track. It's the mind of an idiot of genius, positively stuffed with the best that has been thought and said. He pronounced the phrase with a kind of old maidish precision that made it sound entirely ludicrous. Greece, Mexico, backsides, crucifixions, machinery, George IV, Amida Buddha, science, Christian science, Turkish baths, anything you like to mention. And every item is perfectly irrelevant to every other item. He rubbed his hands together. He twinkled delightedly through his bifocals. Disquieting at first, but do you know I'm beginning to enjoy it. I find I really rather like living in living inside an idiot. I don't doubt it, said Mr. Proctor, matter-of-factly. It's a common taste. Jeremy was offended. One wouldn't have thought this sort of thing was very common, he said, nodding in the direction of the Greco. It isn't, Mr. Proctor agreed, but you can live in an idiot universe without going to the expense of actually constructing it out of ferro-concrete and filling it with works of art. There was a pause when they entered the lift. You can live inside a cultural idiot, Mr. Proctor went on, inside a patchwork of mutually irrelevant words and bits of information. Or, if you're a lowbrow, you can live in the idiot world of the homme moyen sensuel, the middleman, the middle sensual man, the world where the irrelevancies consists of newspapers and baseball, of sex and worry, of advertising and money and halitosis and keeping up with the Joneses. There's a hierarchy of idiocies. Naturally, you and I prefer the classiest variety. (laughs) The elevator came to a halt. Pete opened the gate, and they stepped out into the whitewashed corridor of the sub-sub basement. Nothing like an idiot universe if you want a quiet and irresponsible life. That is, provided you can stand the idiocy, Mr. Proctor added. A lot of people can't. After a time, they get tired of the no-track world. They feel the need of being concentrated and directed. They want their lives to have some sense. That's when they go communist, or join the Church of Rome, or take up with the Oxford Group. Anything provided it will make them one-trackers. And of course, in the overwhelmingly, overwhelming majority of cases, they choose the wrong track. Inevitably, because there are a million wrong tracks and only one right. A million ideals, a million projections of personality, and only one god and one beatific vision. From no-track idiocy, most of them pass on to some one-track lunacy, generally criminal. It makes them feel better, of course, but pragmatically, the last state is always worse than the first. If you don't want the only thing worth... Ha- if you don't want the only thing worth having, my advice is stick to idiocy. Is this where you work? He went on in another tone as Jeremy opened the door of his vaulted study. And those are the Hobart papers, I take it. Plenty of them. The title's extinct, isn't it? Jeremy nodded. And so is the family, or very nearly. Nothing left but two old maids in a haunted house without any money. 
He twinkled, uttered his little preparatory cough, and, patting his bald crown, said with an exaggerated precision, Decayed gentlewomen. Exquisite locution. It was one of his favorites. And the decay must have gone pretty far, he added. Otherwise, they wouldn't have sold the papers. They refused all previous offers. How fortunate one is not to belong to an ancient family, said Mr. Proctor. All those inherited loyalties to bricks and mortar. All those obligations to tombstones and bits of paper and painted canvases. He shook his head. What a dismal form of compulsory idolatry. Jeremy, meanwhile, had crossed the room, opened a drawer, and returned with a file of papers which he handed to Mr. Proctor. Look at these. Mr. Proctor looked. From Molinos, he said in surprise. I thought that would be your cup of tea, said Jeremy, deriving a sly pleasure from talking about mysticism in the most absurdly inappropriate language. Mr. Proctor smiled. My cup of tea, he repeated, but not my favorite blend. There was something not quite right about poor Molinos. A strain of, how shall I put it, of negative sensuality. He enjoyed suffering, mental suffering, the dark night of the soul. He really wallowed in it. No doubt, poor fellow, he sincerely believed he was destroying self-will. But without his being aware of it, he was always turning the process of destruction into another affirmation of self-will. Which was a pity, Mr. Proctor added, taking the letters to the light to look at them more closely. Because he certainly did have some first-hand experience of reality. Which only shows that you've never, you're never certain of getting there, <clears throat> even when you've come near enough to see what sort of thing you're going to. Here's a fine sentence, he put in parenthetically. Ame a Dios, he read aloud. Como es ansi y no como se lo dice y forma su imaginación. Jeremy almost laughed. <clears throat> the coincidence that Mr. Proctor should have picked up on the same passage as had caught Dr. Beesbo's eye that morning gave him a peculiar satisfaction. Pity he couldn't have read a little cant, he said. Dios ansi seems to be much the same as ding ansik. Unknowable by the human mind. Unknowable by the personal human mind, Mr. Proctor agreed, because personality is self-will, and self-will is the negation of reality, the denial of God. So far as the ordinary human personality is concerned, Kant is perfectly right in saying that the thing in itself is unknowable. Dios and si can't be comprehended by a consciousness dominated by an ego. But now suppose there were some way of eliminating the ego from consciousness. If you could do this, you'd get close to reality. You'd be in a position to comprehend Dios and Si. Now, the interesting thing is that, as a matter of brute fact, this can be done, has been done again and again. Kant's blind alley is for people who choose to remain on the human level. If you choose to climb onto the level of eternity, the impasse no longer exists. There was a silence. Mr. Proctor turned over the sheets, pausing every now and then to decipher a line or two of the fine calligraphy. Tres maneras hay de silencio, he read aloud after a moment. El primero es de palabras, el segundo des, de deseos, y el tercero de pensamientos. He writes nicely, don't you think? I said, uh, three ways of, of silence. The first is of words, the second is of hmm, desires, I think. And the third is of thoughts. He writes nicely, don't you think? Probably that had a lot to do with his extraordinary success. How disastrous when a man knows how to say the wrong things in the right way. Incidentally, he added, looking up with a smile into Jeremy's face, how few great stylists have ever said any of the right things. That's one of the troubles about education in the humanities. The best that has, ever, that has been thought and said. Very nice. But best in which way? Alas, only in form. The content is generally deplorable. He turned back to the letters. After a moment, another passage caught his attention. 
Oira y lira el hombre racional, estas espirituales materias, pero no ligera, dice San Pablo, a comprenderlas. Animales homo non perceptit, eque sunt spiritus. And not merely animales homo, Mr. Proctor commented, also humanus homo, indeed above all humanus homo. And you might even add that humanus homo non perceptit e qua sunt animales. Insofar as we think as strictly human beings, we fail to understand what is below us no less than what is above. And then there is a further trouble. Suppose we stop thinking in a strictly human fashion. Suppose we make it possible for ourselves to have direct intuitions of the non-human realities in which, so to speak, we're embedded. Well and good. But what happens when we try to pass on the knowledge so acquired? We're floored. The only vocabulary at our disposal is a vocabulary primarily intended for thinking strictly human thoughts about strictly human concerns. But the things we want to talk about are non-human realities and non-human ways of thinking. Hence the radical inadequacy of all statements about our animal nature, and even more, of all statements about God or spirit or eternity. Jeremy uttered a little cough. I can think of some pretty adequate statements about... He paused, beamed, caressed his polished scalp. Well, about the more unteam aspects of our animal nature, he concluded demurely. His face suddenly clouded. He remembered his treasure trove and Dr. Obisbo's impudent theft. But what does their adequacy depend on, Mr. Proctor asked. Not so much on the writer's skill as the reader's response. The direct animal intuitions aren't rendered by words. The words merely remind you of your memories of similar experiences. Notice calor is what Virgil says when he's talking about the sensations experienced by Vulcan in the embraces of Venus. Familiar heat. No attempt at description or analysis. No effort to get any kind of verbal equivalence to the facts. Just a reminder. But that reminder is enough to make the passage one of the most voluptuous affairs in Latin poetry. Virgil left the work to his readers. And, by and large, that's what most erotic writers are content to do. The few who try to do the work themselves have to flounder about with metaphors and similes and analogies. You know the sort of stuff. Fire, whirlwinds, heaven, darts. The veil of lilies, Jeremy quoted, and the bower of bliss. Not to mention the expense of spirit in a waste of shame, said Mr. Proctor. And all the other figures of speech, in endless variety, with only one feature in common. They're all composed of words which don't connote any aspect of the subject they're supposed to describe. Saying one thing in order to mean another, Jeremy put in, isn't that one of the possible definitions of imaginative literature? Maybe, Mr. Proctor answered. But what chiefly interests me at the moment is the fact that our immediate animal intuitions have never been given any but the most summary and inadequate labels. We say red, for example, or pleasant, and just leave it at that without trying to find verbal equivalents for the various aspects of perceiving redness or experiencing pleasure. Well, isn't that because you can't go beyond red or pleasant, said Pete? They're just facts, ultimate facts. Like giraffes, Jeremy added. There ain't no such animal, is what the rationalist says when he's shown his portrait, and then in it walks, neck and all. You're right, said Mr. Proctor. A giraffe is an ultimate fact. You've got to accept it, whether you like it or not. But accepting the giraffe doesn't prevent you from studying and describing it. And the same applies to redness or pleasure or notice color. They can be analyzed, and the results of the analysis can be described by means of suitable words. But as a matter of historical fact, this hasn't been done. Pete nodded slowly. Why do you figure that should be, he asked. 
Well, said Mr. Proctor, I should say it's because men have always been more interested in doing and feeling than in understanding. Always too busy making good and having thrills and doing what's done and worshipping the local idols. Too busy with all this even to feel any desire to have an adequate verbal instrument for elucidating their experiences. Look at the languages we've inherited. Incomparably effective in rousing violent and exciting emotions. An ever-present help for those who want to get on in the world. Worse than useless for anyone who aspires to disinterested and understanding. Hence, even on the strictly human level, the need for special impersonal languages like mathematics and technical vocabularies of the various sciences. Wherever men have felt the wish to understand, they've given up the traditional language and substituted it for another special language, more precise and above all less contaminated with self-interest. Now here's a very significant fact. Imaginative literature deals mainly with the everyday life of men and women, and the everyday life of men and women consists, to a large extent, of immediate, of immediate animal experiences. But the makers of imaginative literature have never forged an impersonal, uncontaminated language for the elucidation of immediate experiences. They're content to use the bare, unanalyzed names of experiences as mere aids to their own and the reader's memory. Every direct intuition is notus calor, with the connotation of the words left open, so to speak, for each individual reader to apply according to the nature of his or her particular experiences in the past. Simple, but not exactly scientific. But then, people don't read literature in order to understand. They read it because they want to relive the feelings and sensations which they have found exciting in the past. Art can be a lot of things, but in actual practice, most of it is merely the mental equivalent of alcohol and cantharides. Mr. Proctor looked down again at the close-set lines of Molino's epistle. Oira y lira el hombre racional estes espirituales materias. He read out once more. Pero no le guerra a comprenderlas. He'll hear and read these things, but he won't succeed in understanding them. And he won't succeed, said Mr. Proctor, closing the file and handing it back to Jeremy. He won't succeed for one of two excellent reasons. Either he has never seen the giraffes in question, and so, being an hombre racional, knows quite well that there ain't no such animal. Or else he has had glimpses of the creatures, or has some other reason for believing in their existence, but can't understand what the experts say about them can't understand because of the inadequacy of the language in which the fauna of the spiritual world are ordinarily described. In other words, he either hasn't had the immediate experience of eternity, and so has no reason to believe that eternity exists, or else he does not believe that eternity exists, but can't make head or tail of the language, or, or else he does believe that eternity exists, but he can't make head or tail of the language in which it's talked about by those who have had experience of it. Furthermore, when he wants to talk about eternity himself, and he may wish to do so either in order to communicate his own experiences to others or to understand them better from the human point of view himself, he finds himself on the horns of a dilemma. For either he recognizes that the existing language is unsuitable, in which case he has only two rational choices, to say nothing at all, or to invent a new and better technical language of his own, a calculus of eternity, so to speak, a special algebra of spiritual experience, and if he does invent it, nobody who hasn't learnt it will know what he's talking about. So much for the first horn of the dilemma. The second horn is reserved for those who don't recognize the inadequacy of the existing language, or else who do recognize it but are irrationally hopeful enough to take a chance with an instrument which they know to be worthless. These people will write in the existing language, and the writing will be, in consequence, more or less completely misunderstood by most of their readers. 
inevitably, because the words they use don't correspond to the things they're talking about. Most of them are words taken from the language of everyday life. But the language of everyday life refers almost exclusively to strictly human affairs. What happens when you apply words derived from the language to experiences on the plane of the spirit, on the plane of timeless experience? Obviously, you create a misunderstanding. You say what you didn't mean to say. Pete interrupted him. I'd like an example, Mr. Proctor, he said. All right, the other answered. Let's take the commonest word in all religious literature, love. On the human level, the word means what? Practically everything from mother to the Marquis de Sade. The name reminded Jeremy yet again of what had happened to the Saint-Vain-Jour de Sodom. Really, it was too insufferable, the impudence of it. We don't even make the simple Greek distinction between ero and philo, eros and agape. With us, everything is just love, whether it's self-sacrificing or possessive, whether it's friendship or lust or homicidal lunacy. It's all just love, he repeated. Idiotic word. Even on the human level, it's hopelessly ambiguous. And when you begin using it in relation to experiences on the level of eternity, well, it's simply disastrous. The love of God, God's love for us, the saint's love for his fellows. What does the word stand for in such phrases? And in what way is this related to what it stands for when it's applied to a young mother suckling her baby, or to Romeo climbing into Juliet's bedroom, or to a fellow as he strangles Desdemona, or to the research worker who loves his science, or to the patriot who's ready to die for his country, to die and in the meantime to kill, steal, lie, swindle, and torture for it? Is there really anything in common between what the word stands for in these contexts and what it stands for when one talks, let's say, of the Buddha's love for all sentient beings? Obviously, the answer is no. There isn't. On the human level, the word stands for a great many different states of mind and ways of behaving, dissimilar in many respects, but I like at least in this. They're all accompanied by emotional excitement, and they all contain an element of craving. Whereas the most characteristic features of the enlightened person experience are serenity and disinterestedness. In other words, the absence of excitement and the absence of craving. The absence of excitement and the absence of craving, Pete said to himself, while the image of Virginia in her yachting cap, riding her pink scooter, kneeling in her shorts under the arc of the grotto, swam before his inward eye. Distinctions, in fact, ought to be represented by distinctions in language, Mr. Proctor was saying. If they're not, you can't expect to talk sense, in spite of which we insist on using one word to connote entirely different things. God is love, we say. The word's the same as the one we use when we talk about being in love, or loving one's children, or being inspired by love of country. Consequently, we tend to think that the thing we're talking about must be more or less the same. We imagine in a vague, reverential way that God is composed of a kind of immensely magnified yearning. Mr. Proctor shook his head creating God in our own image. It flatters our vanity, and of course we prefer vanity to understanding. Hence those confusions of language. If we wanted to understand the world, if we wanted to think about it realistically, we should say that we were in love, but that God was ex-love. In this way, people who have never had any first-hand experience on the level of eternity would at least be given a chance of knowing intellectually that what happens on, the, on that level is not the same as what happens on the strictly human level. They'd know because they'd seen it in print, that there was some kind of difference between love and ex-love. That's like the variable X, X-love. Consequently, they'd have less excuse than people have today for imagining that God was like themselves, only a bit more so on the side of respectability and a bit less so, of course, on the other side. 
And naturally, what applies to the word love applies to all the other words taken over from the language of everyday life and used to describe spiritual experience. Words like knowledge, wisdom, power, mind, peace, joy, freedom, good. They stand for certain things on the human level. But the things that writers force them to stand for when they describe events on the level of eternity are quite different. Hence, the use of them merely confuses the issue. They just make it all but impossible for anyone to know what's being talked about. And meanwhile, you must remember that these words in the language of everyday life aren't the only troublemakers. People who write about experiences on the level of eternity also make use of technical phrases borrowed from various systems of philosophy. Isn't that your algebra of spiritual experience, said Pete? Isn't that the specific scientific language you've been talking about? It's an attempt at such algebra, Mr. Proctor answered, but unfortunately a very unsuccessful attempt. Unsuccessful because this particular algebra is derived from the language of metaphysics. Bad metaphysics, incidentally. The people who use it are committing themselves, whether they like it or not, to an explanation of the facts as well as a description. An explanation of actual experiences in terms of metaphysical entities, whose existence is purely hypothetical and can't be demonstrated. In other words, they're describing the facts in terms of figments of the imagination. They're explaining the known in terms of the unknown. Take a few examples. Here's one, ecstasy. It's a technical term that refers to the soul's ability to stand outside the body. And of course, it carries the further implication that we know what the soul is and how it's related to the body and the rest of the universe. Or take another instance, a technical term that is essential to the Catholic theory of mysticism, infused contemplation. Here, the implication is that there's somebody outside us who pours a certain kind of psychological experience into our minds. The further implication is that we know who that somebody is, or consider even union with God. What it means depends on the upbringing of the speaker. It may mean union with the Jehovah of the Old Testament, or it may mean union with the personal deity of Orthodox Christianity. It may mean what is probably would have meant, say, to Eckhart, union with the impersonal Godhead of which the God of Orthodoxy is an aspect and a particular limitation. Similarly, if you are an Indian, it may mean union with Isvara, or union with the Brahman. In every case, the term implies a previous knowledge about the nature of things which are either completely unknowable, or at best, only to be inferred from the nature of the experiences which the term is supposed to describe. So there, Mr. Proctor concluded, you have the second horn of the dilemma, the horn in which all those who use the current religious vocabulary to describe their experiences on the level of eternity inevitably impale themselves. And the way between the horns, Jeremy questioned, isn't it the way of the professional psychologists who have written about mysticism? They've evolved a pretty sensible language. You haven't mentioned them. I haven't mentioned them, said Mr. Proctor, for the same reason as in talking about beauty, I shouldn't mention professional estheticians who have never been inside a picture gallery. You mean they don't know what they're talking about? Mr. Proctor smiled. I'd put it another way, he said. They talk about what they know. But what they know isn't worth talking about. For what they know is only the literature of mysticism, not the experience. Then there's no way between the horns, Jeremy concluded. His eyes twinkled behind his spectacles. He smiled like a child, taking a sly triumph in some small consummation of naughtiness. What fun it is when there isn't a way between, he went on. It makes the world seem so deliciously cozy when all the issues are barred and there's nowhere to go with all your brass bands and shining armor. Onward, Christian shoulders. Forward, the light brigade. Excelsior. And all the time, you're just going round and round, head to tail, following my Fuhrer like Fabre's caterpillars. That really gives me a great deal of pleasure. 
This time, Mr. Proctor laughed outright. I'm sorry to have to disappoint you, he said, but unfortunately there is a way between the horns. The practical way. You can go and find out what it means for yourself by first-hand experience. Just as you can find out what El Greco's crucifixion of St. Peter looks like by taking the elevator and going up the hall. Only in this case, I'm afraid, there isn't any elevator. You have to go up on your own legs. And make no mistake, he added, turning to Pete, there's an awful lot of stairs. Dr. Obispo straightened himself up, took the tubes of the stethoscope out of his ears, and stowed the instrument away in his pocket along with the Saint-Vanjour de Sodome. Anything bad? Mr. Stoyt asked anxiously. Dr. Obispo shook his head and gave him a smile of reassurance. No influenza, anyhow, he said. Just a slight intensification of the bronchial condition. I'll give you something for it tonight before you go to bed. Mr. Stoyt's face relaxed in his cheerfulness. Glad it was only a false alarm, he said, and turned away to get his clothes, which were lying at a heap on the sofa under the Watteau. From her seat at the soda counter, Virginia let out a whoop of triumph. Isn't that just swell, she cried. Then, in another graver tone, You know, Uncle Joe, she added, He's got me panicked about that cough of yours. Panicked, she repeated. Uncle Joe grinned triumphantly and slapped his chest so hard that its hairy, almost female accumulations of flesh shivered like jellies under the blow. Nothing wrong with me, he boasted. Virginia watched him over the top of her glass as he got into his shirt and knotted his tie. The expression on her innocent young face was one of perfect serenity, but behind those limpid blue eyes, her mind was simmering with activity. Was that a close call, she kept saying to herself? Gee, it was close. At the recollection of that sudden violent start at the sound of the elevator gates being opened, of that wild scramble as the footsteps approached along the corridor, she felt herself tingling with a delicious mixture of fear and amusement, of apprehension and triumph. It was the sensation she used to have as a child, playing hide-and-seek in the dark. A close call, and hadn't Sig been wonderful? What presence of mind? And that stethoscope thing he pulled out of his pocket. What a brainwave. It had saved the situation. Because, without the stethoscope, Uncle Joe would have put on one of his jealousy acts. Though what right he had to be jealous, Virginia went on to reflect with a strong sense of injury, she really didn't know seeing that nothing had happened except just a little reading aloud. And anyhow, why shouldn't a girl be allowed to read that sort of thing if she wanted to, especially as it was in French? And besides, who was Uncle Joe to be prudish, you'd like to know? Getting mad with people only for telling you a funny story. Then just look at what he himself was doing all the time, and then expecting you to talk like Louisa M. Alcott, and thinking you ought to be protected from hearing so much as a dirty word. And the way he simply wouldn't allow her to tell the truth about herself, even if she had wanted to making a build-up of her as somebody quite different from what she really was, acting almost as though she were Daisy May in the comic strip, and he a sort of little Abner, rescuing her in the nick of time. Though, of course, he had to admit that it, it had happened at least once before he came along, because if it hadn't, there had been no excuse for him. It had happened, but quite unwillingly, you know, practically a rape, or else some fellow taking advantage of her being so dumb and innocent, at the Congo Club with nothing on but a G-string and some talcum powder, and naturally she was always supposed to have hated it, crying her eyes out all the time until Uncle Joe came along, and then everything was different. But in that case, it now suddenly occurred to Virginia. If that was the way he thought about her, what the hell did he mean by coming home like this at 7.15, when he told her he wouldn't be back till 8? The old double-crosser. Was he trying to spy on her? Because if so, she wasn't going to stand for it. If so, then it just served him right that that, that was what Sig had been reading to her. He was just getting what he had deserved for snooping around, trying to catch her doing something that wasn't right. Well, if that was how he was going to act, she'd tell Sig to come every day and read another chapter. 
though how on earth the man who wrote the book was going to keep it up for 120 days, she really couldn't imagine, considering what had happened already in the first week. And here was she, figuring there wasn't anything she didn't know. Well, one lived and learned. Though there was some of it she really had in the slight, in the least wanted to learn. Things that made you feel sick to your stomach. Horrible. As bad as having babies, she shuddered. Not that there weren't a lot of funny things in the book, too. The piece she had made Sig read over again. That was grand. That had given her a real kick. And that other bit where the girl... Well, baby, said Mr. Stoit, as he did at the last button of his waistcoat. You're not saying much, are you? A penny for your thoughts. Virginia raised that childishly short upper lip in a smile that made his heart melt with the tenderness and desire. I was thinking about you, Uncle Joe, she said, 